You're listening to This Life Explains It All. With the creators of Vera, your guide for navigating a conscious life. We're Stefania Romeo and Catherine Griffiths. This Life Explains It All was created out of belief that our life experience is our greatest teacher. And as soul sisters and intuitives, we've spent the past decade completely obsessed with better understanding our minds and our bodies, all while running a mile a minute with busy careers as leaders in the tech startup world. On this podcast, we are bringing you the insights and lessons that have changed our lives with the thought leaders, healers, and dreamers behind them. We're discussing wellness practices, healing methods, and experiences that get us to think differently about life and live empowered. Whether you want to uplevel your health, your career, your relationship, or are going through changes to your life path, this information can help you get there and let you know that we're right here with you. We believe life isn't meant to be lived linear, and no matter where you are right now, you're right on time. Hey guys, I'm Katherine Griffiths. And I'm Stefania Romeo, and you're listening to This Life Explains It All, Vera's podcast. This week, we're so excited to share a conversation with Matt Ringros. He's a Vedic meditation teacher and founder of Bondi Meditation Center and The Business Mind. He's received the highest standard of training in Vedic meditation from Maharishi Visananda, who's considered the preeminent authority on Vedic meditation in the Western world. Yeah, and he's been teaching Vedic meditation for years and is committed to passing on this ancient knowledge in a way that's practical, enjoyable, and relevant to modern life. He is so passionate about the incredible benefits of the practice and helped so many people get on the path that they're meant to be on simply through integrating this method of meditation. We go really deep in this conversation about life, and it will likely leave you thinking much differently after. I love that we had this conversation about meditation because I feel like everyone knows meditation is good for you, but there's all of these different kinds of meditation. And I think there's a lot of kind of figuring out what's the right one for me? How does it work? Why does it work? And I think that this will give a lot of answers in what felt like a really enlightened way with some answers to bigger life questions as well in the conversation. So yeah, I practice uh, Vedic meditation. It can also be called transcendental meditation. And I got into it at a time when I was really anxious. It was anxiety that I hadn't talked or hadn't felt before. And I was talking to my brother at the time and he said that Vedic or TM meditation has completely transformed people's lives and people say that it changes their lives. So I immediately researched where I could go in Sydney and went to get trained on how to do it. I've heard so much about that too. I've, I've not yet adopted a regular Vedic meditation practice. I've dabbled a little bit without doing the formal training based on what I've researched. But I distinctly remember many years ago when I was a kid hearing Jerry Seinfeld, who I'm a huge fan of, I'm one of the biggest Seinfeld fans, saying in an interview that his life has been transformed by transcendental meditation. And he said that it feels like transcendental meditation is him plugging himself in for a charge. And when he completes a meditation, he feels completely renewed, recharged. And I looked into it a little bit and I saw that there are a number of other really successful, well-known people in the world who swear by transcendental meditation. A couple of others, for example, are Oprah, And famously, if you know the history and are a fan of the Beatles, they began practicing transcendental meditation way back, which really influenced their music in the later kind of years of the Beatles and and what some of them did afterward and how they looked at the world. There's countless examples like that. But I think that anytime we look to someone who has been able to manage many things, be successful, feel fulfilled, and there's this common thread that they're all doing the similar thing or many are doing the similar thing, then I want to explore it more. All right, so let's get into the conversation. In this conversation, we talk about what Vedic meditation is, again, sometimes called transcendental meditation, and how it differs from the other meditations that are out there, what happens to the brain during meditation, how this method helps people remove anything from their lives that is irrelevant to their evolution. I love this part. The benefits of Vedic meditation and how it's helped people with fertility, changing their life path, stress and anxiety, and so much more. 
We also talk about how Vedic meditation helps prepare you for navigating the external world and how when you practice meditation regularly, you tend to care less and less about societal pressures and external stimuli. You naturally start to trust your intuition more. We cover how Vedic meditation helps with understanding our ego too, and a lot more. I love this conversation. Let's get into it. Welcome, Matt. We are really looking forward to this conversation. I mentioned a little bit in the beginning that I'm familiar with Vedic meditation. I have been practicing and I'm really looking forward to digging into it more and hearing your perspective on on the practice. So we'd love to start out by hearing your thoughts and perspective around Vedic meditation versus some of the other meditations that are out there and how you would differentiate it. First thing I should say is, if anyone's doing a meditation that satisfies them and that they really like, I don't want to start telling them there's anything wrong with that <laughs> because um, I'm not an expert on any of the meditations. I'm hopefully a pretty much an expert on Vedic because I've been it's been kind of like my life mm-hmm. since I learned it and particularly since I started teaching it um, like eight or nine years ago. But I don't know about all the other techniques, but I do know something. Mm-hmm. What I know, and I know a kind of a comparison a general comparison. And that is that a lot of techniques involve some level of concentration and some level of attempting to force the mind to do something unnatural. And that is difficult. It's difficult to get a kind of a gratifying experience in your meditation from that approach. You can get there, but it takes a bit longer to get deep and get that nice, consistent feeling of enjoying your meditations. Whereas the reason Vedic is so popular is, as you know, is because you go in, you get your mantra, and then you close your eyes and away you go. Usually within the first one or two or three sessions are getting, you know, quite a deep meditative experience and it can be quite lovely. And it's like you imagine meditation would be when you kind of thought about it. And this is why I think it's increasingly popular because it's easy and it works and it works on the level of getting you pretty deep. So that's one thing I can say about it. Another thing I can say that's really interesting about Vedic meditation is it comes with a whole body of knowledge. So you can just learn Vedic meditation to, you know, lower your blood pressure or help you with your anxiety, your exam stress, or to be better at playing football or whatever it is. You can do all that and use it in those ways. But if you're interested in kind of exploring it further, there's a whole world of knowledge, which when added to the practice can start to really give you true freedom. So that's a thing. Can you unpack that for us a little bit more when you talk about its ability to give us freedom? What does that look like? Hmm. Yeah. So the freedom it gives us is, you know, this idea of freedom, it's not so much about, you know, what you can do with your body um, where you're allowed to go and all that kind of stuff. The freedom it gives you is a freedom to experience your true self. And if you like, disidentify somewhat from the material world and what it tells you that you are and how it values you. So you can start to have an experience which is deeper than the surface layer of life and where you can start to realize how you're perceived or how you perceive yourself does not need to be determined by external circumstances. And that's a very beautiful and freeing experience. As you can just thinking about it, you can start to realize that, right? Mm-hmm. And it feels good. And from that place of feeling more free, then you can end up actually expressing your true potential better than if it's confined by perceptions based on, you know, material things. Yeah. And what is it about the specific method of meditation that allows you, because I've experienced that myself. I mean, mainly with, I originally was introduced to it because I had really high anxiety and I couldn't 
get it under control. And it really, really helped really quickly. I couldn't believe how fast it helped me with that. So what do you think it is? Because I have tried other meditations as well, like maybe a 10 minute guided meditation, all kinds of different forms, but that was the one that really stuck out to me. So what is it about that specific method that helps people so quickly, would you say? Well, as with all these questions around meditation and Vedic stuff, there's different levels you can answer on. Mm -hmm. So let's try a couple of levels. Um, We can go physiologically, you know, on the physiological, biological, scientifically measurable level. The reason that you found it helped with your anxiety is that when we do Vedic meditation, it puts us in something called a hypometabolic state, which is a state, hypo means low, and metabolic refers to the speed at which we metabolize oxygen. So it puts you into a state where your breathing gets a lot more slow, shallow. You're taking in less oxygen because you need less oxygen. And in that deep state of rest, the body heals and balances itself. Um, So it starts producing more serotonin, more dopamine, more oxytocin. These are the nice list chemicals. Oxytocin is the loved one. The other two are like the happy, calm ones. And it reduces the production of cortisol and adrenaline and epinephrine and about 30 of the stress hormones. So you start to get a more a sweeter body chemistry, which feels more comfortable. So on that level, you can see why you'd start to feel less anxious. Mm-hmm. Just very basic overview um, of what it does. And maybe, you know, a more of a sense of happiness for no reason. And that's a physiological assessment you give it. But we could also... Vedic stuff and Vedic knowledge is all about consciousness. And so we could approach it from that and answer it from that way. And we'd say that um, what this meditation does very profoundly, very consistently, and more quickly than other practices I've come in contact with anyway, is it gives you an experience of being. And, you know, the experience of being is that kind of deeper version, if you like, or deeper, truer essence of ourselves, which underlies all the stuff which has happened to us. And maybe so imagine ourselves as a computer. When we were in the production, there were certain production flaws, let's say, genetically. (laughs) So we come, we pop out, we've already got a few predispositions. And then as we go through life, uh, the programming comes into our computer. And some of those programs are buggy and all that kind of stuff. And eventually that's us. We're a product of any manufacturing defects we say or peculiarities or idiosyncrasies and then the things which happen to us and that can feel like us anyway but there's a deeper version of us which is much more perfect than that which underlies any of the programming and any of the flaws and that we could call being so being is a deeper identity of ourselves and it is more powerful more positive, more beautiful. And as we meditate more often, we get in touch more and more with that place. And that starts to infuse us. And we start to realize that as our identity rather than mistaking the things that have happened to us and the residue they've left as our identity. So if you like being, you could call in kind of very simple terms, our best self. It's kind of a bit of an (laughs) underselling of it, but it's like that. It's like the best self, um, the place where wisdom and lovingness always preside. So if we're identified with that, then we'll be responding from that place and also experiencing the freedom I touched on earlier, which that gives us. So in summary, Vedic meditation is a really practical way of having that experience of diving underneath the thinking, the subconscious accumulations, all that stuff to experience a place within ourselves which isn't touched by any of that. And we probably forgot even existed before we meditate. And then um, the more we do that, the more we start to remember, but not in a conscious way. The more it kind of like we soak it up and it becomes our identity again. So it's not a pretending or thinking, oh, I must be good. I must be loving. I must be wise. No, it's just like um, by experiencing that repetitively, exposing ourselves to that state, that place, it infuses into us. So we start to naturally express its qualities and those qualities are all nice things you know being very adaptable being very creative being very loving having an understanding that and responsibility towards an interconnectedness with other things these are all part and parcel Mm -hmm. of being consciousness so the more we experience that and we are that the more we'll respond from that place 
Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. And I feel like it also acknowledges this process as well, perhaps where maybe someone is far from that state and there's a releasing or kind of a, a process or, or journey that happens in order to then get to that place where there is that kind of recognition. And, and you didn't say this, but maybe in that blissful state. One thing that I have thought about, and I think with, and I, I'm not a regular practitioner of, of Vedic meditation, although I, I would like to be, because Vedic, even in studying it from the outside and seeing kind of the impact it's had, you see so many people who have had profound realizations or people, even some of the most successful people in this world attribute uh, Vedic meditation as, you know, the practice that has transformed their lives. And there's a lot written about that. Entrepreneurs, celebrities talking about it. Not that that is the measure, but, you know, it's discussed in, in those kinds of circles a lot. But that said, one of the things that I have thought about and I would love your thoughts on as it relates to that kind of release from the external world that I think sometimes when I really look inward, I get a little bit uneasy about is I think that the attachments that I have to the external world, to the physical world, even to my ability the fact that I have the ability that I feel good about to navigate the material world, the release of that feels scary. Like it feels like I have this safety in my ability to navigate the material world and my attachments to those things that releasing them, it feels scary. Like I'm giving up a safety blanket or something. I don't know if that makes sense. And it's really well described actually. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I would love your thoughts on that. And I guess what you would say to me or someone like me who's feeling those kinds of things, and I think on some subconscious level, it has prevented me from going very deep with the meditation. Good, because I was going to ask you, I was going to say, okay, so you're skillfully navigating the world and you feel like you're doing quite well at that. Why do you feel the need to let go of any of that? Why do you feel the need to transcend it would be my question to you. I think that sometimes it carries more power over me than I would like it to in mm. terms of informing my decisions and even just my anxiety levels, the way that the uh, levels of energy or thought that I give to things. Yes. So whilst it might seem like you're harnessing and orchestrating things, really they're orchestrating you is what you're saying. <laughs> Sometimes. To some, de- to some degree. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing about attachments. As long as we're attached to something, it's deciding what we do. So attachments are a very normal part of life. And what attachments really are, are systems or strategies or things or people that we've installed and become attached to in order to avoid feeling something. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're complex strategies to help us avoid feeling something. And the answer to transcending those attachments is to recognize something very important. Really, what we're doing is allowing our lives to be shaped by the avoidance of discomfort. Okay. So imagine this big field, we're sheep, <laughs> and, uh, and there's like, and there's this fence, and it's this beautiful pasture and lovely grass and all other sheep out there. And then we've got this little path, and it's quite complicated and it runs around, but it's got a fence on either side. And we know it's electrocuted. So we just kind of go along eating the grass. It's getting very, very thin and dry ground, eating the grass and going along our little path. Now, one day, we kind of like touch the electrocuted fence by accident and it tingles. We realize, oh, it's not that powerful. It certainly doesn't kill us. (laughs) It's just a bit uncomfortable for a second. And we realize that and then we go, all right. And we go through it and we're off into bounding around into the pastures with other sheep managed to work that out as well, having more abundance and generally reaching our potential. This is basically life. We are constantly kind of afraid of and steered by this discomfort in our lives because this idea or this hardwired into us, the unknown is a dangerous place. And by letting go of something we're attached to and moving into the unknown, there's a natural instinctive feeling in us of anxiety or fear moving to the unknown. But actually, it turns out that, and even if we think about it, all the best things that ever happened to us happened when we went into the unknown. That was where the new creative great things happened. But we, sometimes, we have this incorrect fear 
that the unknown is going to somehow hurt us. It's going to be dangerous. So what we learn to do is to, and you hear it said a lot, you know, like everything I'm going to say, you've probably heard said a lot, but is we need to learn to move through the discomfort. So what you need to understand is that, and what meditation helps with is to allow us, you know, that thing I was talking about being, mm-hmm. being another way you might describe that is being the witness. Yeah. Because being is a more expansive state of awareness in which things can arise, but don't overwhelm us. So for example, you want to do something new, like silly example, an embarrassing example. I've got a bit dodgy toenails and I wanted to go. I knew it's just a silly example, but it will kind of make the point. <laughs> I'd walk past a toenail bar and I think, you know what? That's really what I need to do is go in there and I'll sort it out. But there's women in there. They're going to all look at me and the other women are going to talk about my toenails in a language I don't understand. And it's going to be. So I was trapped because of some discomfort. And then one day I was like, you know what? Go in the toenail bar. It's going to be uncomfortable for a minute. And then you're going to have better toenails. <laughs> and I did it. And I went in and it felt mm-hmm. really uncomfortable for a minute. And they all did exactly as I imagined. But then they moved me around the back in the special men's section. All was well. Silly example, but it's one example of like breaking through the fence. And this happens all the time in our lives is that we get a bit close to it feel some discomfort, go, right, no, not going to make any change. I'm going to keep on going through the repeated circuit. And obviously the nail bars, not a significant example in a way, but a relationship might be. You might be in a relationship and, you know, what's our attachment there? Attachment there is to not upsetting the other person or attachment there is to not wanting to lose some of the things we're attached to in the relationship. Worried that if we say a certain thing, it will destroy it. But the fact is that keeps us back, that attachment to a certain feeling keeps us back from talking the truth and actually, and talking to the other person about our inner truth. So now we can start to see how it's a more significant thing, possibly holding us back from genuine happiness. So, yeah, so if we can get used to the idea of not letting these, of having more of a witnessing presence and awareness of these these buzzes we get, which pushes back into not doing things, <laughs> then we can not let them overcome us, realize it's just a body sensation, which is passing, which will pass, and then take the action and experience the liberation that comes from that. And bit by bit, what we're then going to be doing is, because what these things are doing, what this buzzes and this electric fence is doing, it's holding us back from truth, you know, holding us back from expressing and experiencing truth and allowing us to move in the direction where we're actually being pulled to move. Yeah, so it keeps coming back to the same idea of experiencing your full potential, your full freedom. And letting go, basically, in short, involves feeling a feeling, but not letting it control us, feeling it fully. Yeah, and I would imagine it's like, as you're, because I've experienced this personally, but like as you're doing the meditation, and I've heard you talk about this too, it's like the things that are, meant to fall out will just fall out. And when it's actually happening, you don't necessarily realize it. But before you get into that deeper state, it's really hard to let go of things because you don't have that, like, almost like that strength in order to do it, Mm. which is what the meditation helps with. Because I know that that's true in a lot of addiction cases too, that you know, I read from some of your work where it kind of just starts falling out naturally mm. as they're doing this work. Have you seen a lot of cases like that? And I mean, even relationships, I would imagine too, like yeah. relationships that you're in that aren't working or they're irrelevant, then they they come out. That's the key word, yeah, Catherine, irrelevant. So what do we mean by mm. irrelevant? It sounds a bit brutal, you know, <laughs> but, you know, let's just look at it in Vedic terms as usual. So irrelevant means what's irrelevant for your evolution? What's irrelevant for your growth, your evolution? So to the degree to which something is irrelevant for your evolution will be the degree to which you lose the desire for that thing and that it starts to fall away or make itself unsustainable in your world. So in my case, it was a nice, easy black and white experience, which I don't mind sharing, which is that I was like a problem drinker I wasn't like a full-blown alcoholic or anything, but I definitely dodgy binging sessions and it would make me feel terrible and I couldn't get rid of it. And then I learned to meditate and then like immediately I completely stopped drinking. I lost the desire. And that was 12 years ago and I haven't had a drink since. And I tried everything before that. 
So why? Why did it completely go? And why did it not completely go for other people? Well, for me, it was totally irrelevant. I'd done so much research. I've been a DJ in England for 20 years then. And you do plenty of research in that area, shall we say. <laughs> and, um, and also, I was going to be a meditation teacher. And I didn't realize this yet, but I was going to be. So it was totally irrelevant to my evolution. So thank the Lord, it totally went. Now, if you guys, I don't know, let's just say you may be, you've got a pretty healthy relationship with alcohol. And in fact, you know, it's a nice way of socializing and maybe even doing a bit of business. So it retains some relevance. Maybe you just stop a bit of pointless midweek drinking. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or just to balance this out, it could be that you're not drinking enough alcohol and actually you're too reclusive and it's a, it's a relevant means for you getting out and socializing more. So you might drink more. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So this is the idea of how our desires shift to align with what we're here to do. And desires are the means through which the universe guides us, right? Mm-hmm. It guides us through desires. That's what draws us to something to do it. So if the universe wants to change our path, what does it do? Well, it eliminates or removes a desire or changes it. And then we'll go, we'll go off to the new one. <laughs> we'll go following it. And it'll put aversions, things we don't like around things. And that will make us steer away from those things mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah, it sounds like in addition, you said at the beginning, which I think is important to underscore, you said it either will remove itself from your life or it will become increasingly difficult to keep it in your life. And I think that that's an interesting distinction as well, because these things are not always removed. Sometimes then challenges present themselves or or just becomes more difficult. I've talked about this before that that happened to me with a a job um, when I was leaving a corporate role in the past. I kind of was ignoring the little signs that the time was up, but then it just became increasingly more difficult for me to feel like it was a fit. And so that was an example that I feel is related or or some people might feel like there are some parallels uh, maybe for some people listening. Yeah, I like I think of it like it's like you kind of get a few clips around the ear. And yeah. if you're ignoring the clips around the ear, eventually you get a punch in the face. Or another way of putting it is it spits you out. Mm-hmm. Like it spits you out. It becomes more and more unsustainable. Mm, yeah. And the more conscious we become, the quicker this can happen. Right. Mm-hmm. The quicker or the harder it is. So you do find that adjustments are being made in your relationships. You may find that that person either needs to change to make keep themselves relevant or they're off. Mm-hmm. They're gone. Mm. You know, that job, that relationship rather has served its purpose in evolving you for a certain period of time. Mm. But when any relationship has reached its, you know, denouement, the end of its role in helping you evolve, then the desires for one or both partners will change. And that that might never happen because it might be that that relationship is relevant for your whole life. Mm -hmm. But they're Mm -hmm. the rarity. Usually a relationship is relevant for five minutes or an hour or a week or a couple of years or something else. So, and then you just find as you become more conscious, you can't tolerate something that's irrelevant and, and, and represents something unsustainable in your life. Whereas in a lower state of consciousness, you could keep on trucking on for years and years in a marriage or relationship. And then you learn meditation. It should come with a warning sign, really, shouldn't it? Because you learn <laughs> meditation. And what it does is meditation brings the truth to the surface and makes it harder to ignore. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why some people kind of have a fear of meditation because they know that on some level. If they meditate, that it's going to be harder to deny what is true. When really this is something, you know, we can celebrate. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, um, and it, is, it will ultimately be more freeing. Yeah, I would imagine that would be really scary. Like, because I think that there's a lot too in relationships mm. where one person is concerned or worried about growing faster than the other and then what happens. And I, it, it sounds like meditation is a way to really accelerate that process, whether it's growth or bringing things to the forefront. It's also interesting with the lower state of consciousness. I've been back into Vedic meditation again, but like ever since I started doing it, I felt like I have been a little bit more nostalgic around my past and the past version of myself, like the party, I was partying a lot and drinking a lot. And I know that life has changed for many of us right now. So it could be part of that. But I feel like there's some sort of correlation where I'm missing, like in trying to grab onto a lower state of consciousness in myself. Is that what you're saying with that? Yes. 
absolutely this is a lot of people who meditate will relate to that <laughs> comment i think um it's that kind of idea that ignorance is bliss mm -hmm. and we have this nostalgia that it was somehow blissful because the i the thing is ignorance brings with it less responsibility yeah if you're ignorant of the interrelatedness and the fact that fulfillment's ultimately going to come from inside that it's based on evolution, all that stuff. If you're ignorant of all that stuff and not aware of it, then it's easiest to go out to a party, get wrecked and have a good time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Partying does change when you learn to meditate and get into it. First to admit it, it changes. But the question is, we say ignorance is bliss, but is it really bliss? Is it really bliss? Yeah, the party might be when you get yourself into an unconscious enough state mm -hmm. to experience, you know, this is, I think this is the, the realistic take is that parties for a long time after you start to meditate. Eventually, when you become, you know, very high state of consciousness, I'm sure parties are wonderful. Mm -hmm. But for a while, the deal is you're going to give up gay abandon of a party. Mm -hmm. But what's the flip side? Mm -hmm. After the party, you generally don't feel good. Mm -hmm. And generally in life, you're still based in a, a materially orientated kind of philosophy where you think that and you feel that um, your happiness depends on what you can acquire and what you can achieve. And that's that all goes pass and parcel. So you get a good party, but the rest of life is a lot of striving involved mm -hmm. and maybe not a particularly high level of satisfaction or peace in general life. So ignorance is bliss, is it? For about an hour every couple of weeks, maybe. For <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the time, possibly not. Probably not. But it's a very common thing to look back wistfully and remember you know that kind of or maybe misremember yeah. um how it all works and the fact that there's a lot of time where you're not at the party where you're not as i can't think of any other situations other than and this is being very generous to the party <laughs> and the importance of parties i can't think of any other situations where it would feel better to not meditate and we spend a lot of time not partying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that question. Just kind of keeping that as a check for ourselves. Is ignorance really bliss? I think that in addition to with meditation, there are a lot of times where many of us find that once we start doing any kind of inner work and really kind of doing that, our tolerance for the superficial really decreases. So in the party example, maybe you, you're happy or once we're happy having a lot of small talk and a lot of kind of peripheral, non-deep friendships. And then, you know, this has certainly happened with me. And then I, I've heard it so many times as well, like your tolerance for small talk, you just, you don't have any, you have to go deeper for it to be interesting or even hold your attention. That's what that made me think of when you shared that. Yes, I agree with that. And it's that sense that because you're experiencing yourself more as consciousness, you want to experience the consciousness in other things. In other words, the essence of other things, other people. And anything less is, you know, and more distorted. It's not a pure experience of truth. You want to experience the truth of somebody. And so you'll be looking for conversations which start to reveal elements of them, which get closer to revealing their deeper nature rather than again, what they've acquired and what they've achieved, which can be, or what they've lost and what's gone wrong, which can be a more surface level conversation that we can have, which won't reveal so much. So yeah, you want to get kind of twisty and turny into the conversations and ask questions, I suppose, about subjects which will reveal more and can maybe, depending on your style, bring in humor and things to tease that person to reveal more. And yeah, this is because you're starting to connect to things in general on a level which is deeper, on the level of, we'd say, on the level of what nature intends from that thing or that person. Do you see what I mean by that? So each thing that exists, whether it's a table, a chair, a cup, a person, a job, is all divinely planned from the Vedic view and has a nature intends something with it. And we become more attuned to what nature's intention is through that thing so we can start to feel the truth of things and people and so in a conversation that's what we'll be kind of obviously not directly saying what does nature intend by you mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that's i think my perception is that 
that's what we're kind of looking for in a way, ultimately, through a conversation. I think a lot of people identify with that. The small talk is just literally boring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like the packaging. Mm -hmm. We're not interested in the packaging. We want to, we want the real gift yep. inside. Mm -hmm. That's what satisfies us. That's what makes us feel a connection on the heart. Yeah. yeah. Because we're starting to connect from a place that is genuinely unifying rather than a presentation, mm -hmm. which is designed to impress. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you some tactical questions sure. for the person who is looking to do Vedic meditation or just incorporate meditation more into their life. Because I think a lot of people have challenge with when am I going to fit this in? How do I fit this in? I think that's like one of the big challenges. And then the other is I just can't get my mind to not to stop thinking about all the other things when I'm sitting there yeah. and trying to meditate. So with those kind of two big challenges in mind, how might you guide someone or, or what kind of advice might you give for someone who is wanting to bring more of this into their life, but having some trouble with how to do that? Well, I'd start by saying, look, do you have time to eat and sleep? And they'd generally say, yes. I say, well, no, right up front, you're not going to believe me, but I'm going to tell you anyway, this is as important a phys physiological function process as those two things. This is important for your health. As those two things kind of almost it's, it's very important <laughs> uh, i'm just thinking yeah hang on a minute you kind of starve if you don't eat but anyway yeah so it's very important much more important than we realize and in fact what you want as a human being is not available in any other way and also hopefully they'll say well what do you think i want as a human being i say well i think you want to feel a sense of fulfillment a sense of happiness deep peace and ease in life some ways of joy along there I say, yeah, okay, fair enough. I say, well, yeah, well, as long as you're looking to the outside world, those things aren't available in any consistent way. You'll just have waves of happiness when you achieve or acquire those things, punctuated or separated by periods of dissatisfaction and striving on some level, looking for the next wave of happiness. So what you actually want, firstly, is only available through doing this thing. So just before you get really busy meeting all those appointments, so you don't have any time left for meditation, I will just point out that those appointments are all about in the hope that they'll provide you that thing, which meditation is the only way of achieving. So let's say you'd make time, you'd always get there for your hair appointment in the hope that it will make you happy. Hopefully it will for a little while, but you know, realistically, could be a bad haircut. <laughs> and if it's a great haircut, um, the fulfillment level will not be complete in any way that will be satisfying, <laughs> not for a long period of time. Okay, let's say that somebody was going to ring you up and give you, they really believe in you and they want to invest $3 million in that project you've been thinking about. And they're calling at 2 p.m. today. Will you make that appointment? Oh, yeah. You will make that appointment. You'll be <laughs> definitely there like that. We need to pick up the phone. But the thing is, even in that situation, it sounds ridiculous and obviously potentially fulfilling. It's not guaranteed to be fulfilling. That's something which may lead to some level of temporary fulfillment, but isn't guaranteed to in any way. And yet you would miss your appointment with your meditation in order to have that. Or rather, you're more likely to do that than you are to do a meditation, you see. So this is what I'd kind of be saying just to kind of help somebody understand the power of meditation and how we're happiness that they're looking for is an inside job. It's not available in those outside pursuits in the same way they think it is. And yet that's where all our energy and time goes into. So just kind of show them that they'll ultimately be ripping themselves off. So yeah, so that after I've like hammered them with this brainwashing about how important meditation is, I'll also get practical. And I'll talk about the fact that when we do 20 minutes twice a day, it opens up more space. It's like a magic trick. You think you, you've got somebody who's got not enough time in the day already to do everything. You say, all right, I'm going to take away from you two times 20 minutes, 40 minutes. I'm going to take more 40 minutes. They go, what the hell? Taking away? I haven't got enough time already. And then magically, they have more time to do the things they want. Why? Because we spend such a huge amount of time on the emotional component of tasks or in doing things which aren't actually that important, but are trying to meet some place of lack or fear within us. We're trying to satisfy that, but actually could be removed 
and something more productive put in their place. So what I'm saying is that kind of famous saying, if somebody says they haven't got time to meditate, they need to meditate more. <laughs> it's that kind of idea. And then just very practically speaking, we're talking about two times 20 minutes a day, which I think is about 3% of your day. So you're going to make the other 97% better, including sleep. And you're going to make it better by investing that 3%. And if, if you're like saying, well, I don't know what I'm going to do in my morning one. You can always, I'll already get up at four in the morning. Then I'd suggest, yeah, you're getting up at 3.40 now, 20 minutes earlier. Okay, but, you know, sleep's precious. Yes, sleep is precious. It was even more precious when it was the only form of rest you had. Now you have a new form of rest, which is somewhere between, uh, depends on the study you read, five and seven times as effective as sleep. Yeah. So you can do your 20-minute meditation. It's the equivalent to one and a half hours high-quality sleep. So you get up at 20 to four. I feel a little bit tired when you first get up, but by four o'clock, you feel better than you did if you got up at four with the extra 20 minutes sleep. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so on. So I'd just keep hammering them until they said, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try it. And then the other part of your question was about quietening the mind and how the mind can be very, very busy. And this is Vedic meditation speciality because this is most people's problem with meditation. And my experience with meditation as well before I tried Vedic. I tried other techniques and had exactly the same experience, just didn't feel like anything was happening. I was just totally aware of the room, had my eyes closed, yeah, but I was just thinking and all that stuff. And the more I tried to stop that, the kind of more uncomfortable I felt. So Vedic meditation does not involve any controlling of the mind or trying to stop the mind thinking. The mind will stop thinking in ways that are quite astonishing, actually, and surprising, but not by any attempt to control. In fact, quite the opposite. It's like we go to, uh, it's like going to the park and it's a dog park. So when you get to the park in the Vedic meditation, you let your dog run freely and that's your mind. And eventually at some point it runs around freely and this dog, maybe it's a bit old or something, I don't know, because he gets tired. <laughs> and then he goes and has a little sleep. You see what I mean? So it ends up being through allowing the mind just to wander effortlessly. And it's not just sitting there doing that with your eyes closed there's a mantra which is getting us into a deeper state but the thoughts end up going into a deeper state everything goes into a deeper state and by allowing it to do what it wants eventually that effortless approach um, allows the mind to still totally but it's not the objective it's not what we're trying to do and there's no control involved it's just what happens yeah so you have my sympathies <laughs> having done those other techniques they are hard work and um I never felt particularly great doing them or found any stilling of the mind. And in the end, then I did the technique where you're not supposed to still the mind, where you're not trying to, and the mind still. Yeah, I like that area because I don't try and avoid anything. I just let whatever comes in while doing the mantra, and then eventually it just starts quieting. So it felt like I'm not trying to force anything with this type of meditation, which I really liked. Are there any like transformations that come to mind? Apart from mine, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last count, 13 women, couples have come to us who couldn't conceive through, you know, umpteen IVF cycles and all sorts of things and then learned Vedic meditation conceived naturally or with IVF and stuff. So that's just a little thing. There's one that really I love because it's just so funny and good. But it started off not funny. So I taught somebody and um, we have a chat at the start. Um, before they get the mantra and this guy was just really sad and crying and just said he'd always just always had this sadness and uh, he was a music producer and productive in life and all that but he had this background sadness and so I you know okay talked about it a bit and then there's a bit in when you teach somebody where you leave them to meditate on their own for a bit mm -hmm. do you remember that bit Catherine so yeah. you kind of like give them the mantra and then do a bit with them and then you leave them on their own for 15 minutes and um, so I did that and then I came back in the room and he's just sitting there going, this is epiphanous. This is epiphanous. He goes, is that a word, epiphanous? Anyway, it's an epiphany. <laughs> I said, what? He goes, it's gone. I said, what's gone? He goes, the sadness is gone. I feel happy. <laughs> anyway, in itself, that wouldn't have been a um, particularly remarkable because lots of people have that kind of experience. But six years later, it's still his experience. And he just, for some reason, for him in that process, it just removed whatever stress was causing that immediately, whatever was blocking him, causing that sadness. And he just experiences a much more blissful life now. 
so I like that one. I just like the fact that he used a word I'd never heard and he didn't know if it was a word and it was just joyful. It was great. I want to be mindful of time and, and we'll get to our closing question in a minute. But before we go to that, I'd love to ask your perspective on given this kind of toolkit and experience that you now have in practicing Vedic meditation for so long, is there anything that you have learned or feel like you have helpful perspective, perspective that has helped you through this time in the world and what's going on in the world? I suppose one of the things which Vedic knowledge helps with, and not just the knowledge, but then knowing that and then seeing it reflected in life experience, that's when it's useful. You know, It's not just a belief, it's something, a pattern that I've observed, which is that all change is progressive change. So that things happening all the time, many of them at the moment, not meeting our expectations or maybe even preferences, but within all of them is opportunity for growth if we can be open to it. If we can be open to it and not focus on what's gone, what's dying, but instead what space is being made for something new and what that new thing is and what it allows us to do. And maybe in the the bigger plan, the bigger picture, observing that there were and there are unsustainable behaviours in general in this world of ours and how some of this might be helping to remove some of those or change some of those unsustainable behaviours. So having, I guess, a trust that things going exactly the way I want to is actually not always the best thing. In fact, it's guaranteed boredom on some levels. And one of the things that's great about when you meditate is you start to become more adaptable. So things, you don't need other people and things to adapt to you. You have more adaptation energy, we call it, which means the kind of creative energy and inspiration and ability to adapt to things when they don't meet your expectations. And not only do you get better at it, but it becomes satisfying. So I kind of not asking other people to adapt on our behalf. Like we're the primary adapters around here, better at adapting. So I'm going to adapt. I'm not going to be asking anyone else to adapt. Other people might be struggling with their stress and their attachment to things being a certain way. So instead, yeah, just kind of enjoying it becomes satisfying to creatively meet the need of the time and to adjust that need. I find it helpful personally to adjust that sense of always being the primary needy person, you know, and what can I do to going and looking for the need? Because lots of people are struggling, as you say. So there's lots of need and finding that need and meeting it in some way, adapting to it, helping those people is a very empowering way to feel better about the situation. And it it kind of allows you to actively engage in the process rather than being a victim of what's happening. So I find that those approaches are, they're more freeing and more empowering. Mm, Yeah. Maybe we just needed a global shakeup as well. Like it's like going back to the stagnation. Maybe this is like, there were little signs like on a bigger scale, like there were little signs here and there, and then it just needed a big shakeup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the relationship. Yeah. Between the world and us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there were some irrelevancies which are being removed. Exactly. Yeah, and we need to make ourselves relevant mm-hmm. to continue in the relationship. Yeah. You see, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. Yeah, the same patterns. So we'll get to our closing question, and that is, what life experience has been your greatest teacher? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I find that love is the greatest teacher because, you know, with love, it amplifies everything, doesn't it? So any of your attachments, feel you feel more attached <laughs> and the fear can be greater, but also the experience and reward can be richer. So I think I'll give two examples of my life experiences, my, my biggest ones, and they'll be my main love relationship with my wife, um, Sally, my ex-wife, Sally now, because I experienced, you know, very intense love with all its fireworks and all that stuff and that for a long time we're together for I think 18 years or so and then the having to let go of that the realizing that that was that had served its role and letting go of the most precious thing for a long time you know which I thought my life kind of depended on my happiness depended on and seeing how it was the right thing to separate and how we've both kind of moved forward and thrived and found a new kind of love in that that whole thing that whole kind of 
life cycle of a relationship in all its intensity is a big lesson because it's like you have to walk the walk you know talk the talk on that you know mm-hmm. and it was a massive lesson in letting go and the power of letting go and then the other love example is being a father to my boys and just how it gives you access to a higher state of consciousness to play with because you, know? you have unconditional love which is an aspect of the highest state of consciousness and so it's just nice to be able to favor that and fall into that so as a, as a parent you have definitely the potential with that if you can harness it to live quite an enlightened life but you just have to not and, and have an enlightened relationship with your children but you have to not buy into what society tells us to do and so that process of finding out how I want to be a father and not necessarily go along with the usual punishment kind of processes that are very popular in terms of disciplining and so on and discovering that and seeing that work over time and wondering if it will and oh god really is this the right way and (laughs) realizing that you know through all of that and through Sally and through my boys that love is always the answer so many times I thought is it really though can it be here I mean he's just done x y and z I mean how can love be the answer here surely it's some withdrawal of love or some no it's always the answer it's always the starting point it's always the starting point um for example with children realizing that making them feel totally loved will also make them more open to guidance rather than you know withdrawing it in some way will make them actually less open to your guidance and so on so yeah marriage and fatherhood that's beautiful thank you for sharing that and where can people find you if they want to work with you on Vedic meditation or just find out more? Okay. So if they're interested in this kind of chat and knowledge, mm-hmm. then there's a podcast called Very Vedic, mm-hmm. which is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. And we, I talk about this kind of stuff with my student Anna at some length, all sorts of different subjects. And if somebody is in Sydney, then I teach Vedic meditation at Bondi Meditation Center with my colleague Maraid Ball, who's the other teacher there. And yeah, so come and join us and learn Vedic meditation and all the other bits and bobs that we do, the knowledge, the other techniques, and we, we do all that. Yes, and we will share the links to everything in the show notes so everyone can find it easily. Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Wow, that conversation really made me think. Like, yes, it was about meditation, but it was so much about life and spirituality and just so much that I'm like, my mind is going crazy right now. (laughs) I love how at the beginning he was like, whoa, we're going deep really quick. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Matt was great. Definitely encourage everyone to check out his work. And as always, if you liked this episode, if you found value in it, share it with a friend who it might help out as well. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review. It helps us grow and continue to bring on great guests like Matt. Until then, I'm Stefania Romeo. And I'm Catherine Griffiths. We'll catch you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend and hit subscribe so you never miss a show.